0: When John the Baptist went out preaching, his message was repent, Matthew 3.2. When our Lord began to preach, his message was repentance, Matthew 4.17. When he sent the disciples out, they preached repentance, Mark 6, 12. Peter after Pentecost preached repentance, Acts 2.38. Paul in Athens preached repentance, Acts 20-21. And our Lord told upon five of the seven churches in Asia to repent. The last word of our Lord to the church was not the Great Commission. The last word of our Lord to the church was repent. It's about the last thing the average church is willing to do, but it's his last word to the church. Have you noticed the alternatives to repentance in these five calls in Revelation? Repent, or I will remove, I will fight, I will kill. I will come as a thief, I will spear you out of my mouth. That doesn't sound like Jesus when first reading, but he said it. And these are the consequences that befall unrepentant Christians in churches. I've been preaching now for 53 years, and I've read bulletins galore announcing revivals and calling on people to visit and invite and sing and pray and all of that's good. But I've looked in vain generally for what is so obvious in the New Testament that only a blind spot in our eye can account for such silence. Almost nothing's ever said about the need for repentance in the church, getting right with God and men. We'll do everything else. But the average so called revival is generally a drive for more church members, leaving the present membership untouched. Where is the prophet among all the priests who will call the church to repentance? We assume that the present fellowship is in good shape, and we generally won't dare to touch the status quo with a 40-foot pole. The status quo needs to be unquoed, pretty generally today. M. F. Ham said, Until we get some of God's people right, we cannot hope to get sinners regenerated. Sam Jones said, "'Until the church members of this city make restitution, confess slander, forgive one another, forsaking worldliness, social drinking, gambling, and card-playing, and other sins, they are not ready to lead sinners to Christ. Let us clean up ourselves, and sinners will be converted.'" I know that kind of preaching is out of style, but so are revivals, pretty generous. When Mr. Moody went to England on his first campaign, he preached the grace of God. But when he went back the second time, Paul Moody, his son, says that he preached repentance because he had come to know that unless there was a genuine turning away from known sin in life and thought, there would be little permanency of change. B. H. Carroll said, I give it as my deliberate opinion that the Christian profession of today owes its lack of vital godliness, its absence from prayer meeting, its miserable semblance of missionary life, very largely to the fact that old-fashioned repentance is so little preached, you can't put a big house on a little foundation. Preaching repentance is a thankless job. People like to go to great meetings where they get lost in the crowd. But stand in a local church where everybody knows everybody and call on deacons and Sunday school teachers and choir singers to get right with God and men, and you'll understand what Joseph Parker meant when he said, the man whose sermon is repentance. "...sets himself against his age, and will be battered mercilessly by the age whose moral tone he challenges. There's but one end for such a man off with his head. You had better not preach repentance until you have pledged your head to heaven." So said Joseph Parker. (laughs) The church must first repent. The majority of our membership give very little evidence of ever having been born again. And if you are what you've always been, you're not a Christian." A Christian, something new, a new creature. I could have led some people to the Lord if they hadn't joined the church. <laughs> Too many of our people are living in sin and we are bypassing sin. You remember after Joshua's defeat at Ai. He could have said, Well, let's all throw our chins back and straighten out our shoulders and regroup and try it over. But they wouldn't have gotten anywhere because God said there is sin in the camp. Israel is sin. Well, of course, it was Achan who had sinned. But Israel had sinned and they had to do something about it. Paul could have said to the church at Corinth with all its troubles, people chasing pet preachers around, going to law, disorders at the Lord's table, one man living with the wrong woman, and so on. Paul could have said, well, I know, but we've got a lot of good people and I want to accentuate the positive. But Dr. Campbell Morgan says that he dealt with the carnalities first and then the spiritualities. I hear it said so often that all you have to do is preach love. Just preach love and that'll take care of everything. Well, if that's true, why did Paul wait until the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians before he got around to love? There was plenty of other things that needed to be attended to. Oh, I know they say things could be worse. Yes, they could, maybe. But I belong to the things could be better school and not the things could be worse school. Beloved, we are trying to evangelize today with an unawakened and undedicated church, generally speaking. I heard of some small boys who went out to play ball the other day, and uh, when they arrived at the field, they discovered that they'd forgotten the ball. There were some moments of frustration. Then one of them said, oh, forget the ball, let's get on with the game. It seems to me that we're doing something like that today. The church can do many things after she repents, but she can do nothing until she repents. And I'm hearing it said sometimes in high places, let's forget our faults and failings. All our theological differences in our world and this ranks and march ahead. That sounds good. But one traitor in the ranks can do more harm. Than 500 enemies out front. Spiritual warfare today is a good deal like the Vietnam War. There is no front line. The Viet Cong over there are everywhere. And the enemy is everywhere today because the church has been infiltrated. The devil's not fighting churches today, he's joining. Churches tell a sick man to go out and act like a well man, and that'll make a well man out of him. It's ridiculous. There's something wrong with a sick man, and you have to deal with what's the matter with him, and then he will naturally act like a well man. Uh, I read only recently. Let's quit talking about what's wrong with the church. Let's call a halt and get to work for Jesus. Suppose our linen isn't spotless. Let's get our eyes on the robes of Christ. Now, that sounds good. It's absolutely misleading. I remember that it was said of the church at Sardis that there are a few who have not defiled their garments. I remember something about keeping oneself unspotted from the world. I know that Christ is our righteousness, yes, but we must not only have righteousness on us, we must have it in us. I read of a testimony meeting some time ago where an old brother got up and said, well, I think it's like this. Out here in the country, there's an old barn, and in the wintertime, it's all covered with the snowy whiteness, and that's the way my old sinful heart's all covered over with the righteousness of Christ. And an old lady got up and said, Brother, if you ever thaw out, you'll be in a terrible fig. <laughs> I believe in righteousness in you as well as on you. I believe that your position up there and your condition down here and your standing up there and your state down here ought to correspond. And while we cannot be faultless, we can be blameless in this present world. I know the book says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, but what's the next line? Make not provision for the flesh. I know that we ought to preach the grace of God, but what does grace teach us? That denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. I know we ought to preach the promises of God, but I believe that after we preach the promises of God, we ought to move right on in 2 Corinthians 7, 1 and say, having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. I know we're not to judge people. I know the Lord knows them that are his, and I'm glad he does. Otherwise, some of them would be pretty hard to identify. But the verse goes on to say, Let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. One of our best writers, who has lately gone on to be with the Lord, said this. The popular notion that the first obligation of the church is to spread the gospel to the uttermost part of the earth is false. Her first obligation is to be spiritually worthy to spread it. Our Lord said, go ye, but he first said, tarry ye. He said evangelical Christianity is now tragically below the New Testament standard. Worldliness is accepted as part of our way of life. Our religious mood is social instead of spiritual. We've lost the art of worship. We are not producing saints. Our models are successful businessmen, celebrated athletes, and theatrical personalities. We carry on our religious activities after the methods of the modern advertiser. Our homes have been turned into theaters, our literature is shallow, and our hymnody borders on sacrilege, and scarcely anyone appears to care. We must have a better kind of Christian soon, or within another half century we may have no true Christianity at all. Increased numbers of demi Christians is not enough. We must have a reformation. And Dr. Criswell said the other day, our church and denomination are beginning to die. Christianity will be practically non-existent by the year 2000 with the present tendency. The first business of the church is not to evangelize, but to get ready to evangelize. There's no use trying to excite an unprepared, undedicated mob of church members to rush into a business for which they are not ready in mind or in heart. A Gideon's thirty-two thousand, without training, a carnal mixed multitude, uh, unacquainted with spiritual warfare, knowing little about it and carrying less. Our first business is to produce a better grade of Christians before we add more names to the roll. We need seriously to ponder Matthew twenty-three fifteen, where our Lord said to the play actors, the hypocrites, the Pharisees, "Ye compass sea and land to make one proselyte." And when he is made, you make him twofold more the child of hell than yourselves. Now, after all, the Pharisees had some good points. Our Lord said, Do as they say. They sit in Moses' seat. They read the scriptures, they prayed, they went to God's house, they tithed, they lived separated lives, they were anxious to preserve religion in Israel. There was a time when winning converts to the religion of Moses was good and the right thing to do, but religion had become institutionalized, and now they were propagating a dead faith, and every new convert was both a lost heathen and a lost Jew. Generally, And there are exceptions, of course, that prove the rule. But generally, we are propagating a subnormal, degenerate brand of Christianity. And Dr. Finley is absolutely right when he says we're developing a massive number of 20th century Pharisees active in religious work without being motivated by the Spirit of God. It's much easier to make Pharisees than it is to make Christians. And unless the church repents and has a complete overhauling, and I don't mean a tune-up job, but a complete overhauling, our evangelistic and missionary drives may only add a multitude of proselytes, just like the crowd we already have for the most part, for light produces light, and it is possible that many may be twofold more the child of hell, an unsaved pagan and an unregenerated church member. Worldly churches produce more worldly members. Churches weak or unsound in doctrine produce more of the same kind. Churches that operate in the energy of the flesh instead of by the Holy Spirit produce more of the same kind. We must improve the quality of our churches, for converts tend to take on and reproduce the qualities of the churches that convert them. It's not enough to get excited and rush out to add a host, a new proselyte. Any worldly cult or organization can do that. Our first business is to get the church ready to evangelize. Don't forget, brethren, that our Lord said in Acts 1, 8, not... Ye shall bear witness. He said, Ye shall be witness. Now, we're trying to get some folks to go out and bear witness when they've never learned to be a witness. They aren't what they're talking about. After all, the word Christian is both a noun and an adjective. And we need more Christian Christians. we are a little weak on the adjective. Of course the church needs to get out into the world. We didn't have to read Bonhoeffer to find that out. We've known that ever since the Lord said, As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I sent them into the world. He told us in John 17 that we've been saved out of the world, that we're still in the world, that we're not of the world, but we've been saved out of the world to go back into the world, to win others out of the world. That's the only business we've got in the world. That's the second. I know that we're the salt of the earth. But uh, salt never did anybody any good in a salt cellar. We're building million-dollar salt cellars all over America today, and they're necessary, but the salt has to be shaken out as the early church was scattered in all directions from Jerusalem into the decaying carcass of a putrefying society in order to be effective. The other day, somebody was being shown over a brand-new church building, and... uh, the man who was directing the tour said, I tell you, this is a remarkable church that it's so insulated that you never hear a sound from the outside.
1: That's the trouble.
0: <laughs> We're not hearing the call of a lost world. We're not hearing the need of the world today. Eh? The church needs to look out of the window, yes, but before we look out of the window at the need of the world, we need to look in the mirror of God's word and see ourselves. We need to divide our time between the mirror and the window. After all, it's after Isaiah saw God and so himself And God said, Now go tell this people. My Bible says, It is time for thee, Lord, to work. So to yourselves in righteousness, reap in mercy, break up your fallow ground. It is time to seek the Lord till he come and rain righteousness upon you. It's time for God to work. That's God's business. It's time to seek the Lord. That's our business. We need to break up the fallow ground. Fallow ground is unproductive because it's undisturbed. I wonder whether, above all things else, we do not need a, a soiling today. I was down in First Church, Jackson, Mississippi, Dr. Doug Hudgens for a week, and uh, one night after the invitation, as we stood in the he said, Well, we did some subsoiling tonight. Well, that's what our master was talking about. I like the homely figures out of the Word of God. Moab have settled on his knees and have not been emptied from vessel to vessel. You know what that means. It's a jar of vinegar that set till it has a scum or milk that has set till it's curd. And churches sure get like that and get a scum over them, and revival churns them up and empties them from vessel to vessel. Your medicine model sometimes says shake well before using. That's what God has to do with a lot of his people. He has to shake. Have you been shook up lately by the power of God? That's the meaning of this tremendous challenge here to around the saints to break up the fallow ground to empty the vessel so many times it's like the lemonade with the sugar in the bottom it's there but it needs to be stirred when i was pastor in charleston years ago i frequently went over to the citadel the military college and had the baccalaureate there one time i thought a lot of old general summer a the commandant at that time he was a great old soldier he and uh uh macarthur We're in the First World War together. He didn't have much to say, but when he said something, you could count on it. One day I spoke there and as we marched out, I tried to be as military as I knew how and keep step with the general. We got out there and he turned and took my hand and said, thank you, you get under these boys' hides. And I've been praying ever since, Lord, help me to get under people's hides. And that's what the Lord meant here. And that's what the Bible means. When it tells us that we've got to get under the crust today. I always thank God for Dr. R. A. Tory. When I was a young preacher I met him on a train one time, that great old prophet of God was on his way to preach somewhere. I wasn't getting anywhere much in the ministry bouncing around from here to understand, What are you doing? Well, I wasn't doing much. I had a rough time giving him my report. He said, Young man, make up your mind on one thing and stay with it. And I go up to Montrose, Pennsylvania every few summers where he lived and where he's buried. And I climb the hill and look at the epitaph on his tombstone. I fought a good fight. I finished the course. I kept the faith. And I thank God for a man who made up his mind, knew where he was going, and who gave me that good advice. And Dr. Torrey said, if most churches today knew what a real revival is, they would vote not to have it, and they would pray, Lord, keep us. From heaven in abundance. I believe that in all my soul because they do anyhow. Most of never come. That's voting against it. I have yet to be in a church where most of the members ever thought a revival was worth going to. Now we might think about that. We, we don't need revival today. We're rich and increased with goods that have need of nothing. And our prosperity, we forget that the goodness of God leads to repentance. Jesus Christ must be a necessity before He's ever a reality. Jeremiah said, "Break up your fallow ground. So not among thorns. The showers have been withhold, and thou hast a whore's forehead. Thou refusest to, to be ashamed. You've got a face like a woman of the street. There's no burden today. We spend more money for chewing gum and dog food than for foreign missions. We know too much. We decide what kind of revival we want, and then ask God to sign on the dotted line. God's not signing." On anybody's little dotted line we need to bow to the absolute sovereignty of the holy spirit oh these experts can tell you how god's going to do it but he never does it the way they say it. That's it. i heard of two fellows in front of a taxidermy shop some time ago and they had some stuffed birds out in the window and one said to the other now look at that that's the poorest job of stuffing birds i ever saw you never saw a bird hold on to him like that he doesn't know how to do it just then, the murder flew down on I have seen the experts say, God can't do it this way. God won't do it this way. And then God does do it that way. God is sovereign. God will do it any way he pleases. And it's up to us to get in line with the purpose of God. And now, beloved, there is, there is... A heavenly bird that needs to fly down. In vain we tune our formal songs. In vain we strive to rise. Hosanna's languish on our tongues and our devotion dies. Come, Holy Spirit, heavenly dove. With all thy quickening powers, kindle a flame of sacred love in these cold hearts of ours. It's time for that dove to fly down. When he does, it will be Godly. And it won't be our prescribed way. Right? Dr. Phillips says the church is so prosperous that she's fattened out of it and so organized that she's muscle bound. Out of breath. I like that term. Some time ago, Reader's Digest had quite an article on deep breathing. Went on to say that you and I use very little of our lungs. Of course, we all know that. We we really live by gasps of air. And then I thought about God breathing into Adam the breath of life and Jesus breathing on them, the disciples. The church is trying to exhale all the time without inhaling. We must breathe into us what God breathes upon us. Breathing's pretty important when you quit breathing, you quit living, and you're always just a few breaths from eternity. And one reason why there are so many preachers and church workers, music directors and what have you read in the face, puffing and blowing today, out of breath, is because we're living by gasps of the heavenly breath. We need some deep breathing exercises in the things of the Spirit. When I was a little boy, my dad used to take me out in the country to an old-fashioned mill that was operated by a water wheel. And the stream would pour on the wheel, and the wheel would turn the other wheels, and the mill would operate. Now suppose that miller would come down some morning and the wheel wouldn't turn. How foolish he would be to strain and strive trying to make the water wheel go round. How ridiculous to call in the neighbors to help him try to make the wheel go round. But I can tell you what he could do. He could go up the creek and clean out the debris and get the dead logs out of the way and then the water would flow and the wheel would turn and he'd be in business again. The Acts of the Apostles is simply the record of the outflow and the overflow of the inflow of the Spirit of God. Just that. And how, pastors, educational men, music men, how all of us sweat and strain. I see them all over the land trying to make the wheels go round. It's about time to go up the creek and clear the channel and get sin out of our hearts and lives. Last year has been my busiest year, and yet I've been thinking about what Jarrett said. We're not always doing most business for God when we're busiest. If I had my life to live over, I'd try to do less for God And try to let Him do more through me. It's not what we do for God that counts. It's what we let Him do. He wants to work in us to will and do His good pleasure. And our responsibility is only our response to His ability. You say that's passing the book to God. Oh no, you'll work harder than ever. But it'll be the overflow and the outflow of the inflow of His Spirit. When D.L. Moody first started out as a Christian, they called him Crazy Moody. He was a huge man. He was built like an ox. He had so much strength that he could wear out a dozen men. They called him Crazy Moody, and he tried to turn the world upside down uh, by main strength and awkwardness, really. But in his heart, he wanted to do the will of God, and he was conscious of a need of a deeper filling of the Spirit of God. And finally, he came to such an experience then he said this, and I never had read it until the new biography came out by Pollock. Mooney. said, I was all the time carrying water in buckets. Now I have a river that carries me. Oh, dear preacher and I, dear church worker, tell me the truth. Aren't you carrying buckets of water and wearing yourself to a frazzle? God help us to get to that blessed state. Well, we let the river carry us and before we do it we'll have to go up the creek deal with whatever clogs the inflow is it a sin of omission the good that i would i do not is it a sin of commission the evil that i would not that i do is it a sin of disposition let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit is it a doubtful thing whatsoever is not a faith is sin Is it your body, is your body a temple or a tavern? Is it your mind, is it an evil habit? Is it something wrong in your family life, your business life? Is it neglect of the Bible and prayer? Is it a fighting spirit? Is it a frivolous spirit? Is it a fed up spirit? Sometimes the doctor has to be a patient in his own hospital. Sometimes he has to take his own medicine. Sometimes preachers need to do that. Are we critical? Will you confess it? Will you forsake it? Whoso covereth his sins shall not prosper. Whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. It's one thing to ask God to take away our sins. It's another thing to put away our sins. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from our unrighteousness. It is time to go up the creek in the churches of America. The church must first repeat.